This is a conversation with Jonathan Faust. Hi, uh, Jonathan. Well, hi there, Serge. It's great to speak with you. So we're we're going to be talking about the moment of change and um, and uh, you know what we both are interested in is the idea of contrasting paying attention to the moment of change with a focus on what has to change and how to change it and a certain forcefulness about that. Yeah. You know, what I, what I find interesting is how inevitably we start off with this thought that something's wrong. You know, something, something has to be changed. And of course, when we experience that, we inevitably discover how we react to it. And I just kind of love Buddhist psychology, and it's so clean that they're kind of predictable ways that we we react to the moment when things aren't going the way we want them to. You know, the category of aversion, of anger, judgment, blame, ill will, hatred. We find the mind going into into kind of craving, wanting, planning, kind of escape, fantasy. Or we get lost on that endless cycle of of anxiety and worry, kind of on that hamster wheel of kind of a restless, agitated mind. Or we find ourselves losing steam. You know, we, we kind of slide into sort of sloth and torpor, kind of into a depressive cycle. Yeah, so mm. so uh, I'm noticing when you were talking, um, uh, you said, as if something's going wrong. So um, the immediate impulse I had to, was to play devil's advocate and say, well, you know, sometimes things go wrong, it's not what we want, you know, not everything is fine, you know. And then uh, I heard you talk about, uh, you know, describing the reactions, and I realized what you're describing is the intensity of the reaction. So it's not so much, you know, as I'm hearing you, that, you know, you have to accept everything as being wonderful, but maybe that the intensity of the reaction is not, you know, warranted by the situation. Absolutely. You know, there's that, there's that wonderful um, formula of uh, P times uh, R equals S. Pain times resistance equals suffering. And that we can have a little bit of pain, but a lot of resistance and a lot of suffering. Yeah. <laughs> a yeah. lot of pain, a little bit of resistance, a little suffering. And absolutely, there's something, you know, commensurate to to what's happening versus how we're reacting to it, how we're, how we're holding it internally. So it's nice when you put it in terms of pain, resistance, and suffering, because what we're talking about is uh, when you're talking about these reactions that we have, um, you're not taking a position, a moralistic position, of saying you're wrong to do this, or but you really are giving a very pragmatic observation about, you know, look, if you put more resistance, what you're going to do is actually increase the pain, increase the suffering. Exactly. And, and there is a, a world of difference between being angry and being with your anger. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about that. You know, so, so what I see when we're kind of afflicted by these states and kind of that, that fifth state is is being crippled by doubt or that the inner critic, you know, the, the kind of paralysis that, that kind of overcomes us. We start off with very much of a sense of I have a problem. You know, there's, there's an I, there's a level of identification. 
Yeah, so just as when I am angry is we've sort of lost any capacity to witness or observe our experience, but we're fully identified, we're, we're fully caught in the vortex of that particular emotion. And something magical happens when instead of turning away from and trying to avoid our experience, we actively turn toward it. Our identification with it can begin to shift. Yeah. I think is the, is the key to transforming our relationship to, to pain and to suffering. So, so I'm glad that you took the example of anger, for instance, instead of, you know, uh, because, you know, the, often the people think, oh, angry is bad. Uh, so, um, you know, the, the way to have a good life by somebody, if you, you, you uh, give advice is, oh, um, you know, probably I shouldn't be angry. And very clearly what you're talking about is, no, it's actually a question, it's a different experience of anger. It's about, um, you know, just a sense of feeling it, experiencing it. Um, so can you talk more about that? Yeah, you know, as I like to, as I often point out in my talks, um, you know, you ever notice how much, how much housework you get done when you're really pissed? <laughs> You know, anger is energy. I think of emotion as emotion. It's energy in motion. Yeah. And when we can manage to drop our label of good or bad, but actually turn toward and investigate the experience, we begin to experience it as, as an energetic phenomena inside. And, of course, we get to experience how we're holding it, our, our relationship to it. Yeah. So um, something very nice there is... Um, that sense of, okay, you're angry, so um, you got an enormous amount of free energy, and uh, look at all the amazing things you're going to be able to do with it, including cleaning your house. Exactly. Exactly. And, and we, we begin to realize that, that an, an emotion is really nothing more than a biophysical event. I mean, sorry, a, psycho, a psychobiological event. Yeah. There's something happening in the psyche, but it's also happening in our biology. And, yeah. and I think there, there becomes a very profound shift that we begin to shift to the observer of it. And we begin to explore what we can learn about it and what we can learn about ourselves. So, you know, again, um, uh, there, it's um, um, when you say uh, it's, uh, you know, the, the nature of the event, it's not just a mental event, it's not just, quote, an emotional or feeling event. And uh, essentially, we're coming to the sense that, um, you know, we're bodies with the result of an evolution of uh, all kinds of life forms, and what we experience as consciousness uh, has a basis in our physicality. And uh, so uh, then the lessens the grip of any judgment we would have about feelings, but we just, uh, you know, see them as happening. And as we pay attention to their physicality, uh, maybe is a gateway into being able to observe them as opposed to judging them or running away from them. Exactly. It's not only a gateway of observation, it's a gateway to transformation. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was leading, I was leading a meditation um, uh, group um, a, a couple weeks ago, and as we were sitting there, we're kind of next to a relatively big highway in uh, in Arlington, Virginia, 
And uh, one of those really loud, screaming motorcycles went by. And as I was sitting there, I was imagining how different people would respond to that to that very intrusive sound. And someone might hear that they hear the sound vibrations in their body, and then they immediately go into a proliferation of thought. And their thought might be along the lines of, "Why do they even allow those motorcycles to be on the road? That's incredibly annoying. It's incredibly dangerous. We ought to we ought to get a petition and stop people from driving motorcycles on the road." While another person sitting there might be thinking. Oh my God! Would I love to be on the back of a motorcycle right now, just feeling the hair going—you know, my hair flapping in the breeze—and to feel free instead of sitting here trying to meditate. You know, the what the commonality was the experience everyone had in their body. You know, the sound vibrations that they were experiencing, mm-hmm. and then there was incredible subjectivity in terms of how we relate to it. And I think the same thing happens when we when we have you know strong emotional experiences or anything that we feel is between us and feeling free. You know, I like how uh, when you give that example of the motorcycle, you're mentioning not just one reaction but two, um, because having the awareness of that subjectivity of how different people can react to the same stimulus in a different way uh, is an interesting way to pay attention to the fact that it's a story, it's a, it's a superstructure, it's not the underlying thing. Uh, and uh, it's in a way where our imagination, our uh, baggage, our, you know, we get hijacked in, and away from the immediacy of the experience. <laughs> exactly. And then, and then, of course, the question is, well, well, what is it that gets hijacked? Yeah, yeah. So, what is it that gets hijacked? Well, I think it has something to do with with who we are as the product of causes and conditions. You know, the, the mind is this very kind of conditioned machine. If you have a bad experience with a motorcycle, and if you continue to think motorcycles are bad, then you're going to believe that motorcycles are bad. If you believe motorcycles are bad, you're going to form a habit of that, and you'll continue to avoid motorcycles for the rest of your life. Yeah. So, so in a way, um, we're talking about a cycle where we're sidestepping the idea of, um, you know, uh, mind and body, but saying, okay, you have an experience. That experience leads you to, in turn, interpreting other experiences in a certain way. And that combination of uh, experience, memory, thinking, uh, you know, is going to create an ever-increasing cycle that's going to keep you on a certain track. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, in, in Theravadan Buddhism, it's described as papancha, as the proliferation. That unless we break that chain of causality, we simply move on to an endless loop of associations in the mind. Yeah, yeah. And that's, so, that's true yeah. where, where the body and sensations really are the doorway. So let's go back to, uh, to you know, you're sitting in meditation and there is this, uh, uh, this noise of the motorcycle and uh, you're noticing some associations, okay? So, so what, what happens? What do you do as you notice that? You know, I, there's an acronym that I find very, very helpful that's used a lot in the Buddhist community. And the acronym is RAIN, R-A-I-N. And the, the R stands for recognizing or, or realizing what's happening. In that instance, there's sort of recognizing there's this 
loud, loud motorcycle sound with a vibration in my body. And, and sometimes just by recognizing it or realizing it, we, we begin to kind of sever our identification with it. We can identify, you know, we can sort of observe it. So, it's so not, just uh, recognizing the R itself uh, is not so simple in a way or so evident uh, because it relies recognizing the event itself as opposed to going into the hijacking. Um, that the normal, the default mode for many of us would be to go and, uh, you know, as you said, go into exploring the anger at the movement or the wish to be on that bike. So there is something about, you know, the recognizing that is a step away from that proliferation we were talking about. Exactly, and it's where, where in, in many meditation traditions, there's the practice of noting or labeling. So you're, you're actively labeling your experience. So you're labeling thinking. You know, you're, la you're labeling feeling, and and that practice itself, it separates the subject from the object. So, and so there's a part in a way where you're saying, in a way, you catch yourself saying, "Oh, here I am in that story." Exactly, exactly, yeah. And and as they say in the shamanic traditions, when you can name a fear, you take its power away. Yeah. So that that power of recognizing is is immensely helpful, immensely helpful. Yeah. So the recognizing is really a complex thing. It's just you. It's not something that you know. It's something that comes from in a way experience, teaching, uh, that sense of knowing. Okay, my default mode, which is going to go into you know that that uh, that narration, that story. Uh, I have to actually remember to take the leap of faith of not going there, and uh, and recognizing you know the experience itself. Exactly. And, and just by recognizing something doesn't mean it goes away. Yeah, and that's where it kind of leads into the second part of that acronym, which is the the A, which is allowing or or accepting. You know, so let's say there's this motorcycle sound going by and it's reverberating in my body, and I'm and I'm having you know either an unpleasant or a pleasant reaction to it. Can I allow it? Can I can I really let it be? And that is kind of the those two questions of recognizing and allowing are kind of the DNA of mindfulness. Yeah, and so that allowing is similar to what you were talking about earlier about the anger. Exactly, exactly. And there's there's kind of a, an internal jujitsu that happens when we can allow. We suddenly have the possibility of being a little bit bigger than it. And there's that difference between being angry and being with the anger. Yeah, yeah. Now, and then what I find is sort of like the... Where the, where the transformation happens is in the, the I part of that acronym, which is investigation or, or being intimate with the experience. And primarily, you know, what many traditions talk about, certainly in the Buddhist tradition, and when we explore the whole realm of focusing, is we're exploring where it lives inside, the experience in the nervous system, and how to be with that. So we're sort of shifting our attention to the body itself. Yeah, so that in um, investigation and investigation, uh, there is uh, a shift uh, that uh, um, it's not just um, a sense of uh, recognizing, of allowing, but then uh, you have an increased curiosity about staying with it, observing, tracking it at the body level. Exactly, 
Exactly, yeah. And, that, you know, the word curiosity is really important. You know, there are a number of faculties that are important to stay with it because sometimes when we're experiencing aversion or pain or suffering, it can feel like it's too much. There, there are a lot of strategic ways to, to sort of be with sensation when it feels like it's too overwhelming. Yeah. But and that, so it feels nice to hear you talk about it because uh, when we use words like allow and investigate, there's maybe uh, an unconscious bias that most of us have that we're going to tend to allow and investigate things that are pleasant and uh, wait for the unpleasant things to be replaced by pleasant things in order to, to do more investigating. And, and you're clearly advocating the opposite, of investigating what is, including the unpleasant. Exactly. There's a, a very, very subtle internal game that happens for me when I'm investigating something painful or unpleasant or has an element of suffering. And, and sort of the bargain I have in the back of my head is that if I, if I allow this and if I investigate it fully, then it'll go away and never, ever come back. Yeah, yeah. So the so actually the investigating is uh, is actually part of the remedy. It's very much, you know, and of course that sort of loops back in to recognizing and allowing because the more intimately we explore our experience when we're caught in some kind of pleasant or painful experience, the more we have to draw back on well, what is my experience right now? You know, can I be with this? You know, how does this feeling want me to be with it right now? So we're kind of in a in a in a loop that continue can can either you know sort of drill down into the experience or unpack it. You know, different metaphors are helpful for for investigating uh, sensations that feel very very tight. Yeah, and and uh, it's nice when you mention these very specific things um, uh, using the word unpacking uh, or uh, how does this feeling want me to be with it. Uh, it's a sense that, um, uh, in a way, it's finding rules of engagement or having uh, a socialized way of being with things that we're not with normally. So, uh, in order to create a way to, to to have some interaction with it. Exactly. You know the, the you know the Buddha talked about how when you when you do transformational work, whether it be in a meditation or yoga or really turning your attention to that which is between you and feeling free, he described it as swimming upstream. You know, you're swimming against all of your conditioning, and you're swimming against the conditioning of the culture. And it requires, um, you know, certain technologies, certain ways of paying, paying attention, because it really is an extraordinary thing to, to engage into. Yeah, so it's going to be difficult, and uh, so that part, again, of uh, uh, to not be discouraged. Uh, by the difficulty of it, but recognize that it's actually part and parcel of the process. Exactly. And, and what I have found is that there's something in here that I kind of find kind of sort of like verified faith. You know, when I turn my attention to something unpleasant, when I can recognize it, allow it, investigate it, be with it, my my relationship to it begins to shift. And where what felt tight before now feels free. And that gives me just a little bit of, of faith to continue when I experiencing some when I experience something unpleasant again. You know, there's something inside that goes, "That's right. I was able to deconstruct, able to unpack this in the past. Let me see if I can do it again." 
Mm. So very nice, again, a marker, something that uh, in a way you've learned from other people sharing their experience and now is part of your own experience of having that bodily sense, that felt sense of, oh, something relaxing. So it tells you in the moment that you're actually moving forward, that there's something happening. And uh, over time, it gives you the experience that it's possible to, to confront the difficulty because it has happened, that you have been able to experience that shift. Exactly. I had a very interesting conversation with a, with a Tibetan teacher who I admire greatly, and I did a, a few weeks of, of uh, meditation with him, and, and I had some very profound you know, insights and openings, and, and I asked him, I said, you know, if I could continue with this, what can I expect? And I was so surprised by his response. He said, confidence. So you develop confidence that you can be with anything when it arises. Yeah. And I, I, and I certainly have found that in my own practice. And to just to kind of complete the acronym before I forget it, mm -hmm. it would, you know, the R is recognizing and allowing. The, the A I'm sorry, is recognizing. The A is allowing or accepting. The I is investigating or being intimate. And the N is really kind of the end of the, end of the equation. When you can recognize, allow, and investigate, it cultivates a sense of, of non-identification, a sense of non-attachment, or a sense of natural awareness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. To me, that kind of points to that sense of what is that moment of change. And and I think it has something to do first with our capacity to, to witness our experience, to be the observer of it. But then again, on, on some level, even the observer can drop away sometimes. And and that's that's what we experience that moment of where, you know, the concept of I and mine falls away. And we start off, this is my problem, but when we're really with it intimately, we begin to feel our identification shift. So I want to relate this to what you said a moment ago, because the concept of non-attachment uh, can be very intimidating for people who are not familiar with it in that it can imply some kind of a superhuman, uh, you know, overly spiritual uh, uh, thing that most human beings can't achieve. And if I relate it to what your teacher was telling you about uh, confidence and uh, that the ability to be with anything, uh, you know, it might put... Um, a sense of the possibility of non-attachment mm. as something that's more achievable. Yeah. That you don't have to be threatened, so threatened by something that you have to have a defensive posture about it and that it threatens the very core of your existence and your identity. But there is something, maybe a sense of enough uh, confidence in your ability to withstand things that you're not identifying with what is threatened. Yes. You know, when I, when I lived in an ashram and had a celibacy vow for, for quite a few years, we had something we used to say as a way to sort of keep ourselves inspired. Uh, one of them was, uh, if you don't own a car, you'll never have car problems. And that went on to, if you don't have a relationship, you'll never have relationship problems. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I actually, I think that all of us, have had an experience where the sense of I and mine is not there. 
it might be a moment in nature. It might be making love. It might be playing with a pet. It might be being deeply engaged in a project. It might be playing sports. You know, it might be a beautiful sunset. You know, those moments when when there's no I in mind, but there is is alive and awake awareness. Um, really powerful. Yeah. So a sense of the um, no I. Um, not as a loss, but actually a moment where you're so comfortable, so immersed, so part of it all, so it's going so well, you're so much in the flow, that the question of I doesn't even come up, uh, because it would be reducing that experience in a way. Yes, and, and there, then there are different, again, if you want to talk about strategies, there are different ways to kind of invoke that awareness. And one of the very powerful ones is in the practice of Tonglen. And, and very simply, when I find myself caught in, in a lot of pain or a lot of suffering, or if I'm with, if I'm working with someone who's also caught, there is the reminder that other people feel this too. That when I'm, when I'm caught in pain or unpleasant or suffering, there's very much a feeling of a very, very tight self that believes it's separate. And when we can remember that other people feel this too, there can be kind of an unclenching in that the, the self, there's this recognition that, that we're not alone. And that can really open the frame of how we're holding our experience, sometimes quite dramatically. Yeah, yeah. So, um, in a way to... Uh, uh, maybe not so much go into these uh, more philosophical existential words, but the experience of um, I have moments where I can feel more tight and moments where I can feel more expanded. And um, the moments of feeling tight um, are actually something that are eased when I remember of how it's not just my own experience of so many, it's part of the human condition to feeling that tight. So in remembering that uh, comes a certain relief and relaxation of the tightness. Exactly. Last, I believe it was in April, my, my elderly dog had a stroke. And as I was driving him to, to the veterinary hospital late at night on a Sunday, my wife was in back with him, and a car was really slow in front of me, and I, I found myself getting more and more upset and more and more tight around, um, you know, around how slow this car was. Mm-hmm. And somewhere, just you know, by grace or whatever, it just the, the words came to me. Other people feel this too. When I realized that I'm not the first person on the planet to to lose a beloved dog. And, and when I, when I had that, that little insight, just as you described, something in me relaxed. Something in me opened up a little bit to, to be in my experience a little more fully. Yeah. 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 So, so that sense of experientially, um, noticing how that tightness uh, seems to be related in a way to that intense aloneness. And so the experience of I is actually limiting and alone, limiting, you know, that tightness is, is the experience of limitation and aloneness. Yes. As someone said, we, we uh, were waves on the ocean 
believing that we're cut off. We're just one little, alone little wave, and we forget that we're actually one part of the, of the entire ocean. Yeah, yeah. And um, what I like about the way you describe it is that um, it is something that you are uh, describing a way in which experientially all of us can play with it and experiment what it means to us. Uh, it's not just a philosophical concept to read, but it's about uh, in a moment uh, where that angst is very strong to pay attention to the physical sensation and the idea of redirecting the attention to the sense of, you know, I'm not alone with it um, as, a, as a way to possibly noticing how this might change. Yes, exactly. When we think about, again, any any attentional training really has both the cultivation of wisdom and the cultivation of compassion. And we can practice this in any moment. You know, again, first that recognition of what is my experience right now? And the second, the cultivation of that inquiry, can I be with this? How can I hold this? How am I holding this experience? Yeah, and and in describing that, you very nicely described how actually that um, attentional training, that paying attention to, you know, f that focusing the attention, or, or uh, is um, exploring being in that moment, uh, is actually what leads to change, and it feels you know very clear from the, uh, you know, the examples you've given. It's a really, it's, it's such a, uh, I find it to be such a beautiful reminder for myself, to remind myself it's, it's not what's happening as much as it is how am I holding my experience. Yeah. And I kind of find that two-part definition of meditation to be so helpful. It's recognizing what's happening while it's happening, which is part of the attentional training we get from meditation and other disciplines, but then also exploring our relationship to what's happening. And to me, that's the key where we can really find a, a sense of freedom where one didn't exist maybe even just a moment earlier. Yes, and I think that I like, you know, that uh, adding that part because I think a, a misperception that happens often with words like non-attachment or, uh, you know, a certain mistrust of the ego uh, is a sense of equating, you know, uh, meditation or contemplation with disappearing. And uh, when you use a phrase like our relationship to experience, I think it very clearly points out that it's exactly the opposite from disappearing. It's actually a different relationship, but it's very much a way of being. It's Yes. It, it, to me, it actually cultivates our capacity for intimacy. Yeah. You know, to really, to deeply embody our experience fully. And that incredible paradox, of course, of being intimately present and at the same time being being free, you know, holding our experience with a sense of, of equanimity, you know, a sense of allowing. Mm. Thanks, Jonathan. This is part of the Active Pause podcast at activepause.com. Reminder for myself, to remind myself it's it's not what's happening as much as it is how am I holding my experience? Yeah. 
And I kind of find that two-part definition of meditation to be so helpful. It's recognizing what's happening while it's happening, which is part of the attentional training we get from meditation and other disciplines, but then also exploring our relationship to what's happening. And to me, that's the key where we can really find a, a sense of freedom where one didn't exist maybe even just a moment earlier. Yes, and I think that I like, you know, that uh, adding that part because I think a, a misperception that happens often with words like non-attachment or, uh, you know, a certain mistrust of the ego uh, is a sense of equating, you know, uh, meditation or contemplation with disappearing. And uh, when you use a phrase like our relationship to experience, I think it very clearly points out that it's exactly the opposite from disappearing. It's actually a different relationship, but it's very much a way of being. It's Yes. It, it, to me, it actually cultivates our capacity for intimacy. Yeah. You know, to really, to deeply embody our experience fully. And that incredible paradox, of course, of being intimately present and at the same time being being free, you know, holding our experience with a sense of, of equanimity, you know, a sense of allowing. Mm. Thanks, Jonathan. This is part of the Active Pause podcast at activepause.com.